Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or Stocktoids. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Canute! Hello, Howard. You're going to have to forgive me. For what? What'd you do? Just been working up the nerve for a week. <laughs> really? Has it been that tough for you? Yeah, yeah. Wildcat guest. Pardon me? Wildcat guest? There's, you can't use those two words in the same sentence. I know. It's like they're coming into a hostile environment. Just wanted to make sure. Can you have the can you cue up some Sun Devil music? <laughs> I wish I wish I had a little forewarning on that. Sorry about that. <laughs> a good producer would go just, devils. Like three seconds. It would go just, devils. I don't even know what our stupid. I wasn't into. I'm not into that college rah rah stuff. No, I never cared about it. I probably would have just loved COVID while I was at school. I had four <laughs> friends. I drank with them, and nothing would be different. <laughs> I have a tequila brand now. Hey, so yeah, we got a, we got a, we got a, a turncoat. U of A person. Yeah, well, maybe you can uh, convince him otherwise. Power move. Just keep the sound a little lower than mine's to dominant uh, podcaster, <laughs> podcasty little trick that we do. Oh well, never mind. You know he will be he will be forgiven. I never actually cared about the uh, the rivalries. I thought it was more funny than it was. Serious. I think rivalries are everything. So, Canute, I don't know. We're going to be out looking for... I'm going to see if Patrick has an idea for a replacement producer that takes these kind of rivalries more seriously. Good luck with that. Okay. Yeah, good point. So, Patrick O'Connor, which is, I think, Swedish. What do you think, O'Connor? Close. Yeah. So, he'll tell us. Patrick O'Connor, Summit Peak, uh, their investing firm, they specialize in allocating to... Uh, people like me. So you can see I've increased our chances of uh, being taken seriously by uh, some peak with this intro. So uh, I wanted to, I get asked all the time, Howard, how does your business work? And I say, I really don't know. Uh, I'm living proof that uh, there is no uh, formula, but let's show people what it's like to do my job, which is not all fun and games. People like Patrick O'Connor are gatekeepers. They, they have capital. They allocate it to fund managers like myself that they think are going to be good stewards of their capital in the venture and angel investing space. So they they have a discrete list of people that they do allocations with. And these are the type of people that I get to meet when we go out to uh, raise capital. And so I've never actually had someone like that on the on the show because it's such a unique it's such a unique angle, right? They have they they work just like me for people. They've got to get returns, but instead of picking companies, they pick firms. Huh. Uh, they are not an LP of ours. And so I thought it was a really good no conflict way to get a deep dive into how this industry works. What do you think, Canute? I think this sounds really interesting. Let's get him on. All right. Dial him up. Patrick. Hey, what's up, Howard? How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's sunny in San Diego. I know it's been a hellish kind of uh, hellscape uh, bad air week from our friends in California to you in Seattle. Yes. Yeah, that's true, but it's all blue skies and sunny now. So we're thankful for that. Okay. Well, that's good news. I wanted to get right into this because people ask me about 
this part of my job or the part of managing an early stage fund and building a firm, you know, part of what we do is, is talk to institutions like yourself at Sama Peak who allocate, and we'll get into fees of fees and all the big issues that like you had to get over to, to, to jump into this business. But tell people a little bit about Summit Peak Investments, you know, when you started and why you, how you came to this. For sure. Um, so Summit Peak Investments started in July of 18. Uh, it was started by myself and my partner, Apurva Meta, And both of us, obviously, we've known each other for over a decade, I think 12 years now, actually. And I've worked together for over, well, we've known each other for 12 years and worked together for, for 10. And so we started out, both of us, in the endowment industry. I started out at the University of Arizona. Um, he was He started out investment banking, but he cut his teeth in the endowment industry at the Juilliard School in New York. Um, and then we came together uh, when I uh, moved on to um, a children's hospital based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a pretty sizable endowment. Um, and then he came over two years after me. So I spent nine years there. He spent seven years there. Both of us, you know, we worked at institutions that didn't have a lot of legacy uh, relationships. So it's very difficult to access later stage um, you know, venture capital firms like Sequoia and Benchmark. So we thought, well, let's go to the other side and let's go to the early stage where we can make relationships um, and, and just really kind of press those relationships and, and see what we can do there. And, um, and so that's what we did. And we did that over the subsequent decade, um, built out a very good portfolio um, on the early stage side. And during, you know, while we were doing that, you know, a lot of people, colleagues, whether they be in the endowment and foundation space or the family office space, um, were hitting us up asking us, can we help them do it? Can we help them build their portfolios? Or, you know, or, or asking us advice on how we executed that strategy. So kind of fast forward a little bit to July of 18 when we, um, when we left the endowment and foundation space to start Summit Peak Investments. We were fortunate that we had a lot of, a lot of support from, those, from our colleagues, especially in the family office space, to fund us and for, fund our first fund. Um, and so we were able to raise our first fund and invest that. And now we're on our fund too. And you know, in addition, we have some other vehicles as well that focus on all early stage venture capital. Um, so that's that's how we started and why we started. So we came from the institution LP side. So now we're kind of like a dual GP LP. So we kind of get both of those, uh, the best of both worlds, I guess. And so how do you overcome, because you're on one side and worried about fees to becoming, how do you make that leap? Obviously, I believe the alpha from early stage investing makes fund to funds, you know, very feasible, maybe not the best business for some at peak, like to start, but long-term it's just such a great way to, to get access and do this. I'd love to know all the kind of thinking behind this and how you get investors over the hump when you're talking about fees on fees, because you've been on both sides of the table. Yeah, absolutely. And then for us, I, you know, I would say, especially for a pervert myself, I mean, we were, you know, I, I think in the beginning of our careers, just ardently against fund of funds. I think you're almost kind of trained that way when you're at these mid-size and certainly larger endowments that you just don't use fund of funds. But, you know, it's obviously different if you're at, you know, a 10 billion plus or endowment. Uh, the, the scale from an employee standpoint is much different. But when you're at mid-size endowments, I'd say, you know, billion to kind of five billion range and, and you're and you're working with kind of smaller teams, uh, you just can't be everywhere at once. And I think sometimes you do have to employ fund to funds in certain situations if you want to have access to certain allocations in all honesty. So I, I think for us over time, we got used to that. Certainly we structured them so it wasn't really a fee on fee exercise for us. We wanted to kind of dilute that as much as possible because we were very fee conscious um, when we were at endowments foundations. But 
you know, that being said, when we started Summit Peak, we did the same thing. And we figured from an allocation perspective, um, not only can we allocate the exact same way we did when we were at the endowments, but we can also do that and it helps benefit, or it benefits everybody from the sense that it's not going to really be a fee-on-fee exercise. So what I mean by that is, you know, for us, our allocation is essentially 60% early stage funds. And those would be mostly folks that, you know, we've known, we seeded them at one point in time, you know, whether fund ones or fund twos, um, but maybe they're on their funds three, four or fives now. Um, but we've been with them, you know, over the years. Um, and those are, that's really our core allocation, you know, a few of those. And then 10% of our portfolio is dedicated to the things that we did, like when we started out doing this, you know, investing in those fund ones and finding the next folks. And then 30% of our portfolio are co-investments, you know, or and or slash, I, you know, I, I don't want to say they're directs, but co-directs, I guess, maybe is a better term, meaning that, you know, we can use the term sheet of, of our GP um, and just go, you know, go onto the cap table um, in a deal. And so obviously in those kinds of scenarios, whether it be co-investments or those kind of co-directs, if you want to call it that, your, your fees are greatly reduced. There are no management fees. Sometimes there's no carry and sometimes there's just, you know, the carry can be anywhere from five to 20%, depending. So when you wrap all that up, you know, our blended fees ended up being right around two, a little bit less than two in some instances. That's the case in our first fund um, and just a tiny bit over 20. So I really, you know, it's the same as going direct to a venture capital fund. I mean, it's going to cost you two and 20 or a little bit more than that sometimes. And so with our fees stacked on top because of the allocation, we can kind of mitigate that extra layer of fees. Um, so that's that's really what we did to kind of get around that and to alleviate other LPs' uh, fears of this kind of fees on fees, um, but then also provide access to you know to kind of an early stage world that has you know, over a thousand phones in it. Um, so I think that's that's the that's the access we can provide, um, and then we can do it without paying, you know, hopefully, for folks paying extra layers of fees. And is it for? family offices and institutions or are there regular people that can find you and do this? How does it work? Yeah, for right, right now, you know, our investor base is made up of family offices, high net worth individuals, um, endowments and foundations. Um, so it's across the board, really. And what has changed for your, because you started in 2018, so it's not like you've you've done this for for decade plus, but this is a new thing. What's the biggest change since COVID from an allocator standpoint? uh everything i think you know we uh, we don't travel anymore so everything is done via zoom um so whether that be finding you know new funds talking to new funds um new deals um you know interestingly enough we didn't know what was going to happen you know i think late february early march really you know i live in washington so this is kind of was one of the first places where, you know, COVID kind of was, I guess, you know, started, people started talking about it. You know, it was not till it made its way to the East Coast that anyone really cared. Um, but this is kind of where it all started happening. And I remember Perv and I having those conversations in the beginning of like, well, you know, what are we going to do here? This seems like it's going to be pretty serious. Um, and then that, that kind of manifested itself, obviously, very quickly. Um, so, for us, it was just kind of, let's see, let's wait and see what happens. We already had our fund one going. You know, we kept in close contact with all, all of our all of our GPs and just kind of, you, you kind of had those first three or four weeks in, I guess, what, March, April, where you just didn't really know what was going to happen. So you kind of just hunkered down and prepared. And we did the same thing with our LPs, um, just kind of kept them abreast of what was going on. 
what was happening. And then it kind of came to light fairly quickly that things were not going to be normal by any means, but that people were adjusting extremely quickly and that we could do everything, you know, over Zoom or, you know, pick your video medium, I guess. And, and that's what we did, you know, and um, we decided to uh, go ahead with our fundraise. So we raised fund two and it was really not an issue. I mean, surprisingly, I, I don't know if it was because we already had a lot of existing relationships, um, but for us, um, we really again, had just like in Fund 1, had a lot of support with Fund 2 um, in our fundraise. Um, so we were very fortunate to have the backing again, you know, from our, our investors in Fund 1 and then as well as some new investors. So I, obviously fundraising was completely different. We didn't have to get on planes or do any of those things. Um, it actually happened much quicker. But I think it was, um, I don't know, it was almost as if... Uh, uh, it sounds strange, but that we've made some, in some cases, better relationships. And I would say that was also the case um, as we were meeting new funds as well. I don't know why that's the case, but it felt like that for us. As, as we're meeting new funds and looking through new deals, for us, it just felt like you're, you're always focused on this at all times, you know. Um, and so that's, you know, we're in our houses and you're kind of hunkered down and, and all you're doing is focusing on this. Um, certainly, it's not what I would like to do for the rest of our career, but... But I think for us, it worked out fairly well. Well, it helps me have some empathy to just hear. I mean, you're on both sides of the table. You have to do what I do, right? The only difference is you're betting on people like I bet on people in teams. It's just you're not betting on specific companies every day. So it's just a whole, I think it's fascinating. I think if I look at myself in 10 years, I'm 65, I'm like, love to be doing what you're doing because you get to pass on that knowledge because Summit Peak is not just writing checks. I mean, you obviously have to find managers that uh, have a plan. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, the biggest thing for us now is we have, you know, we have our own, we have our core funds, as I said earlier, you know, and that, that makes limited room. I mean, sometimes, you know, funds will graduate out of that. They'll, they they want to become larger or they want to invest in, you know, not only early stage, but maybe kind of middle and later stage. And we want to stick to pure early stage. So, you know, maybe someone graduates out of that, but it's not like, you know, there's complete portfolio turnover, you know, from, from year to year or even fund to fund. I mean, these are a lot of the same funds every year. So, you know, it's for us, it's what we want to make sure and do is not over diversify. So we want to stick with what we know, um, but we also want to make sure we're looking out there to see who, who is the next cohort, you know, who are the next great managers. Um, and hopefully we can find those. Um, but it makes it harder and harder and harder to distill that down because as you keep filling out spots, there's just not many spots left. So it's a, it's an interesting exercise, you know, it's maybe a little bit different at an endowment because, you know, you had this huge pool of captive capital um, here, you know, we're not even close to that. You know, our funds are hundred million dollars as opposed to, you know, maybe we were allocating 250 million or 300 million at the endowment. And so, and we do that on purpose. We keep it, you know, at a kind of hundred, hundred and fifty million dollar size. You know, it's a it's a good size to go allocate with. But that being said, it makes it it makes makes it an interesting dynamic for us uh, going forward. But the difference between your job and my job is you don't have to market. Like people will find out you have money. Like people like me. So that's different. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have to. You're right on your side. That's correct. Um, we have. Definitely people will come to us, but, you know, it's, and we have, you know, the sourcing engine is every, every which way you can think about it. I think most, most of the time we meet folks through, 
And we meet new GPs through old GPs, right? That's kind of how, how we usually find GPs are through founders. Um, you know, that's that's usually kind of how we're we're sourcing now. But that's one side of the coin. But the other side of the coin is we have to go raise money. And we are a fund of funds. And, you know, there is still a stigma with that. You know, we were big, bad CIOs at, you know, at large foundations and endowments. And, and you know, you walk around like your shit doesn't stink sometimes. And, like, you know, I went from the top to the bottom, basically. So now I'm, you know, it was a conscious choice. but but And it's one we wanted to make. But that's what we did, you know. And now it's kind of interesting because we've got to go raise that money. And even though we have a lot of support, you still got to go, you know, still got to go do it. Um, so and you still have to convince people that this is the way to go and that, you know, that we can be helpful and we can educate and that we can be the ones that can be their venture allocation and we can be their resource. And will you back first time? Man, I think all the alpha personally, like I write checks into funds just to stay. I do it personally to help flow. I do it personally to see what's going on in other industries that I think is interesting because I'm focused only on what I'm focused on. And where do you, what do you think about writing to first time managers? Yeah. I mean, that's how we got our start. You know, I, I remember when we wrote our first check into the very first fund, I thought for sure. I, you know, when we first started. Can you name the name or no? Yeah, sure. It's Ray Tonsing at Caffeinated Capital was our very oh, first. Oh, right. Yeah, he's a smart yeah. guy. Well, but that very, wasn't his first fund. He's been doing this forever. But it was his actual yeah. first fund. It was his very, very first Caffeinated Capital fund. Uh, he was, yeah, he had his own fund before that, Orange Wall Capital. But yeah. for raising outside money, his very first fund was Caffeinated Capital. And that was the very first one we did um, at, at the at the endowment. And that's when we were at the Children's Hospital. Um, and so that was... That was the very first fund we did. Um, I think, I believe it was $25 million fund. Um, we wrote a $2 million check. So, you know, we were his first institutional GP or LP, sorry. And, uh, you know, we were meaningful back then. But I think I remember, you know, as we went through the thought process of, you know, how do we want to build this out? And well, why do we want to do this? And finally, to the execution of that and to writing the first check, I think for us, it was just my thought after we actually did it was like, man, this is going to be a zero. You know, this is just, uh, you know, this, it's just not how I ever thought, you know, I grew up in kind of fixed income world and, uh, and value. And, and I just, you know, venture capital was the complete opposite of that, you know, and, and it was just, how do I go from being able to kind of look at everything mathematically to all of a sudden just going kind of on a whim of, he has got good relationships and good connections and, and, and let's go for it. You know, I'm, I'm being a little bit flippant, but I mean, essentially, you know, that's kind of how it was, you know, and you fast forward to today and that was like the best thing we could have ever done was back his first fund um, because he's just crushed it ever since. And so I, I think, you know, we've done that, you know, over and over again. So absolutely we will back first funds. I mean, that's every single one of our core managers now were first funds, you know, that we backed. And so, and like I said, enough 10% of our portfolio is now dedicated to still backing those first time funds, you know, whether they be, you know, fund one or fund two. I mean, sometimes we'll miss our fund one, but, but we cer certainly don't have an aversion to backing fund ones. And so are you licking your chops and saying, shit, we should be doing 400 billion. I know Sandana, you know, there's been some successful people, you know, leading the charge in your space. Well, who was the inspiration for, for this? Or was just just an eventual entrepreneurial thing to do from being on the other side of the table? Yeah, I thought it was really just an entrepreneurial thing for us to do. We knew other folks existed and we knew they've, they've done really well. You mentioned Sundan. I mean, they've obviously he's built a great firm. I mean, there are many others. Um, but there are not many other than 
you know, Send Down is probably our closest comp um, that focused just in early stage. You know, there's there's a lot of other great ones, but they do also other things as well. Um, and our focus is purely early stage. And so for us, we just thought there wasn't a lot out there. And we thought that, you know, we really enjoyed doing it and we could build a business around it and we could be pretty comfortable uh, doing it. You know, I think if, if it worked, obviously, if we could get a few funds going, um, that it could be a pretty comfortable business. Um, and so and we kind of control our own destiny, you know, on a daily basis. You know, whether we're successful or not is really dependent on us. And that's really what um, what we wanted to do and what we wanted to give a shot. You know, both the Purva and I were 100 percent all in on this from the beginning. We just I think for me personally, I'm more of a builder. So when I look back at University of Arizona, I really enjoyed building that endowment. And same thing at Cook. I built that from the ground up. I mean, there's nothing there when I got there. Um, and that's what I'm great at. I think what I what I don't enjoy is after you've built it is kind of sitting around and monitoring it. And I'm not saying that that's, um, that's not a good job. Uh, it is a good job and it's needed and people need to do it. I just don't think I'm as good at it as building something. And so when, when you get to that phase in the endowment foundation space, you know, when we finally got to that phase, uh, you know, while we were in Texas, it was kind of like, okay, what's next? And this was what's next. You know, we looked around at other endowments, of course. Um, do we want to do this again? Um, but really, it just kind of well, let's just start our own business. And so, uh, venture capital was always something we really enjoyed doing, um, especially on the early stage side. And we thought, well, let's give it a shot. And that's that's really how it. That was the genesis of it. It's fabulous. I think the space that you're in is so underfunded, right? What did you say? A thousand and growing seed investing firms. You know, when I was doing this in 06, 07, there was like Jeff Clavier and a few, you know, few of us. And I was kind of inspired by Jeff. Um, and now to see a thousand people, I wonder what the amount of dollars that is. I know. That's a good question, actually. I, uh, you know, if I had a crack staff, they would just yell that into the phone. But I have Canute from Norway. Yeah, and he's went to ASU. So it's like you oh, already right. know that you already know the Patrick, the problems I deal with. Even worse. I'm a double wildcat. I've got Arizona and Northwestern. So two, two wild, I've, uh, I'm wildcat through and through. Although actually I did not attend University of Arizona. I only managed their endowment, but my wife did go there. So I can, I'm wildcat by association. Well, that makes complete sense. Arizona would never hire within, they wouldn't trust a person educated <laughs> at U of A to manage their money. Ah, that explains things, Canute. We're back on top. <laughs> Whereas ASU people prefer ASU people to manage their money. I don't know if that's good actually either. Note to self. The um so you've done the Tucson thing. You're now yeah. in Seattle. Do you miss the desert? I do. We had a lot of great friends there. Um, you know, I had Tucson and, and Phoenix. I mean, it's just it's it's a that's a great place. I mean it's you know it's hot as hell, obviously, in the summer, but Living in different places, it's definitely much better to be in a dry heat than not. Um, but yeah, I miss it. But I love it up here. I, I wouldn't trade this, you know, for anything. I mean, it's it's just beautiful up here. But I definitely miss. I miss Tucson. It's it's, it's for a number of reasons. I mean, you know, it's so cool to be on a college campus. It doesn't matter where you're at. You know, just the the energy and the vibe. You know, and to work for an institution like that is just it's pretty cool. Yeah, you miss that a little bit. But I was. I think I was 29 when I started at Arizona. So this was a long time ago. It's just an amazing place. What today? So someone reaching out to you, how, how does it work? 
So for, for my listeners who like want to start a fund or have a fund or, and need to raise capital, what's the process look like with a professional institution like yourself? What's realistic? Like if someone like, uh, you mean a fund reaches out to us? Yes. That, like, yes. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, either they just do their own work and they kind of find us um, and they'll reach out to us. And we, I mean, we're always, t- you know, obviously we're always taking calls. That's our job. So, um, uh, but most of the time people reach us through, I would say through folks, through current GPs or other GPs we've spoken to, whether we are invested with them or not. Um, that's, that's one way. In some cases, uh, some founders, uh, here and there that, you know, we've come across or that are in our portfolios that we have decent relationships with, um, maybe they come across somebody and they'll suit them our way. And then also the banks, like whether it be first Republic or Silicon Valley bank, um, both of those guys are good sources of intros. Um, so that that's one way. And then also, you know, in all honesty, sometimes our LPs. So, you know, our LPs in many cases made the decision that we're their kind of fully outsourced allocation, VC allocation. So when someone comes to them, uh, they'll they'll literally make the introduction to us uh, and, and say, hey, these guys do our VC uh, allocation for us. So uh, just talk to them. And so that's really the way it kind of happens, you know, through one of those channels. And then, you know, they'll reach out to us obviously via email or just give us a call or something and we'll set something up. And is it, doing this all this years, is there something about a great investor that just perks your ears where you're hunting them down versus someone calling in and you have to ask all the questions? What, what is there a profile of a great investor? I, uh, you know, that's a really good question. This goes back to, you know, we're, we're allocators and have been for many years. So, I, you know, and I always say this, Maybe it's dangerous to say, but I think I think a lot of people would agree with me if they're allocators, whether it be pension, ENF, family office. You know, if you've done this for a while, you know right away whether you're going to allocate or not, or whether you like them or not. I mean, in the sense of like whether you would allocate. Um, you know, whether you can or not is a different thing, but whether you would is also a different situation. But you know, after you figure that out within the first half hour, I, I think everything else is just building the case for why you should invest, but you pretty much know you're going to. And what are those things? You know, it's very hard to, to put a finger on it. Uh, I mean, you just know, you know, after doing this for a while, you just kind of, we know what we're looking for. Um, We know what kind of, what things just make a great investor and who's, who are good money makers and what kind of attributes those are. But it's really hard to sit here and say, like, it's, it's A, B or C, you know, it's just, I can't give an answer to that because I just really don't know what the one or two things are. It's just so many different things. Um, yeah, it's part chemistry. It's part intuition. It's part skill. It's part risk. It's part, inst- you know what I mean? Like, I think, like you said, that's a pretty honest answer. So I appreciate that. I don't think there's some kind of steadfast rule, although everybody would like to put this stuff in a box. But with a thousand managers where we're probably at 50 10 years ago and on our way to you know over the next 50 years a, a global pandemic of seed stage investing um what gets you the most excited like you know we're in covid it's a nightmare california nightmare politics messy how do you get through that and what's what excites you the most i think being able to build this business it was a little scary, obviously, at first. You know, I said, like I said, we, we left pretty cushy jobs. You know, I mean, we made plenty of money. We never had to leave. You know, we could have just done that forever. Um, so it was pretty scary just to go out and do this. But doing that just gave me a whole new perspective on things. 
that's what excites me. I want to get up every day and build this. And I know Aperva is exactly the same. I mean, you know, we spend hours per day, you know, going back and forth on strategy, business, funds, you know, LPs. I mean, there's so many pieces to this business. And I think the running joke is, you know, for, for some of our LPs, especially that have known us for a while, they just think like, you know, we raise money, invested in, you know, the 10 funds and, and kind of call it a day and just kick back, you know, on just vacation the rest of the time. And it's like, you know, I, I don't even wish it was like that. That would be really boring, you know, but it's nowhere even near that. Every day it's something new. And I think, I mean, this is, this is something we love doing. What, uh, is there a sector you won't invest in? Yeah, we won't invest in biotech. We just don't know enough. So it's just not something. If someone wants to do that, I mean, we can make introductions to folks to other people that may know, but we're not going to pretend that we have really much experience in that area. Um, and we stay away from crypto too. We just, again, don't really have that. And usually if there's any kind of crypto stuff in, you know, in a, like we don't need a specific fund, right? I mean, one of the managers may have a deal or something here or there in it. We're not going to go do that. We we usually stay away from sector specific. Uh, we have one fund that's sector specific, but I think it's just one. Yeah, one. Um, but we usually will stay away from that. But I don't want to say that that means we won't do it because we will. Um, you know, there are funds we're looking at now that we would certainly do, but historically we haven't. I'm the same way even in public stocks. I just don't go near biotech because I don't understand it. What is the, um, and do you, how many funds will you pick per year fund? We will have um, maybe like nine to 13 or 14 core GPs, you know, like the core of our portfolio. Um, and then we'll have, you know, a few other line items of the merging managers, the fund ones and fund twos I spoke of. We want to keep it pretty concentrated. We, we don't want to go too much above that. You know, maybe we'll have we get to 14 or 15 or something like that. But, uh, you know, we just don't want to have 20, 25 funds. And then part of the exciting thing I would think if I was going to do this would be having the ability to look through in my relationships with the managers and, pick, and not cherry pick, but like really lean into one or two companies where there's alignment with the overall vision of the firm. Does Summit Peak do that? You know, when we do co-investments, it's always coming out of our um, existing funds. I'm trying to think if there's ever been a case that we've ever done a co-investment outside of a fund. We have examples of going outside of the fund. Uh, but the deal was in the fund. We just ended up doing it um, with someone else. But we've never done it where it's just the co-investment comes from some, you know, somewhere out of left field and we just do it. And I say that because that means, you know, we usually know um, these deals for quite a while and, you know, for four, five, six, seven, eight years. And then we can kind of lean in on them and, and the co-investment part of our book and, and kind of fill in that kind of BC round um, where we still think there's a lot of upside potential. I don't know if your question meant, do we look specifically at companies that align with our, our own interests? Um, I think we we are, you know, our own interest is obviously to make as much money as possible for our LPs. Um, but that being said, there are some companies that, that we've put money into that I think are doing really good things. I think one example of that is we recently did a co-investment in Verda Health, um, and that was a rate-tonsing company in our caffeinated capital and and it's just it's a it's a company we've known since you know he put his put seed capital in there and it's basically they're getting rid of type two diabetes you know through through wellness and diet and uh, and and just a different kind of holistic approach to being able to reverse type two diabetes and being a part of something like that I mean it feels good too I mean you know not only can you make money on on a great deal but you can also 
do what you're supposed to do and that's change the world. And I think they're, they're definitely doing that. So that's cool. The one thing that I think of building a brand at social leverage with my partners over the years, and we've been at this a long time is media. Like I look at Andreessen and I tell people that's the future, right? Like it's not obviously returns matter. I'm not questioning any of that, but in a world where abundance of capital exists and speed and globalization and the phone, et cetera, where does, does, you didn't mention brand or media. Where does that fit into how you think about this? That's a good question. It's something that and I talk about quite a bit, actually. Um, we have been really bad about that. Um, and it's something we need to stop being bad at. <laughs> when we launched, we did the worst thing ever. We didn't really tell anybody other than a few people who backed us. Um, you know, I just called people a few months ago and just reconnected and they had no idea what I was doing, you know, and that's that's really on us. You know, you're right. I think we need to be better at building our brand. And I think in some cases, I think I told you when we were talking about um, you know, podcasts, I was just like, oh man, I, you know, I just don't like doing these kinds of things. I, you know, I, and, and I, but we need to be able to do these kinds of things. You know, this is, this is what's going to help us build our brand and get our names out there. And Aperva did a podcast just recently as well. And, and he's, you know, same thing. You know, we just, we both need to kind of get on top of that and build our brand. I'm being brutally honest. I mean, we get an F for that. So you're in the power seat. I'm saying when you think about firms like us or somebody else that you're, does media count at all or is it a, is it a negative? That's a good question. You know, I, there's this kind of shift to these unbranded funds now, and we are invested in some of them. Um, but I think you're right. Their brand is the fact that it's not branded, right? So, um, so that being said, they still have a lot of buzz around them. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, for us in our world, you know, where there's buzz around a name, I mean, like nobody else knows who that is, you know? I mean, it's no different whether you're in the hedge fund world, the private equity world, or VC world. If you're not in it, you don't know what it is. But I think for us, I'm just thinking through our portfolio. It's not a concern for us. We don't care, but we have a little bit of both. You know, we have folks um, in funds that are really are building great platforms and do really good things around, you know, media for their companies and for themselves. And then we have guys that really just don't care you know, and just fly under the radar and could care less that if they, if anyone ever knows them, I think they just get known by their deals, you know, and I, I think that's, it really falls on both sides. And I think for us, it's really not that important. Um, I think it's more important, uh, certainly at kind of the mid and late stage. I just don't know how important it is at the early stage. Maybe that's a controversial statement, but I, I think that's kind of where I fall on, on, out on it. And for us, it's just not something we ever really pay attention to or look at as, as a defining piece of whether we should make an allocation or not. You know, let's all go the other way. I think if there's a ton of fanfare and media around it, we're kind of, we're probably a little bit gun shy. We probably won't do it. Um, I, I don't think we've even met somebody like that, to, to be honest, um, at least on the early stage side. So, yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think I, I'd learned a lot. Like you said, it's like a shark week. There's just not enough information, which is good for you. You're in a power position. I'm, you know, applaud that, right? Like I'm, it's a mystery to me. And I, you know, I appreciate you taking time to take away the veil. And, you know, so many people ask me in my industry, what do you do? Like, I think it's so easy. It's like, oh, social, you know, it's so easy to raise money. No, there's so much like probing in the dark. It's like being a 16 year old teen. Uh, <laughs> 
it's weird. And now you've got COVID and Zoom instead of in person. I personally, as a 55-year-old person, love the Zoom opportunity because uh, it's a different way to pitch. Those who can pitch on Zoom and tell a story, it's a lot different than doing it in person in a suit that you may not be comfortable in and putting on a show that, you know, it's a whole different power dynamic. So I think it's rather interesting. It's good to hear stories because you had to go do this too. You just raise money in a pandemic. It's not like you don't have to go do the same thing. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent. All right. Well, we'll have you back. That was really interesting. I'm sure I missed a lot of the questions, but I want to cover the key things, which is, you know, just shedding a little bit of light on the whole system itself and, and the different layers of, of our industry, which, uh, and plus the fact that you're a startup, plus the fact that you got to make hard decisions, plus the fact that uh, you're out raising money, not just allocating. So I think, uh, I think I covered what I needed to cover and I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're kind of like media shy, so I appreciate you doing this for the audience. I, I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. Okay. See you on the web. All right. Go cats. <laughs> I'll leave you with that. Look at that. That was a cheap shot at the end. I'm going to give him the last word because you know what? He may one day be a customer. You never know. Taking the high road canoe. So rare for me. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Just let Tom and Gary. Just, I let him just let him that. get away with it. It's let okay. Tom and Gary know. I, <laughs> I don't always get the last word and go cats. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. The, uh, lucky my kids went there. I would have taken the last word. And it is a great school, and Tucson's a great place. Kind of, I feel bad for the youngsters that just don't get the experience, the college that I got to experience, like you and I did, where every day was a party and all sex was clean, and there was hugging. <laughs> you could actually hug someone safely. Well, we, we didn't hug back then. What did people do when, when we went to school? I don't know. So we just flicked ashes in each other's face as yeah, a show of affection. Uh, now they're like maybe, got complicated TikTok handshakes. Maybe a high five or something, Jeez. but that's about it. Maybe. And then I would just stick my hand in a thing of ice, <laughs> clean it from all the, the sickness that you get Norwegians brought into the world with your uh, partying. Oh, Pro- the Norwegians party. They did. Did Norwegians also go to U of A, Knut? Uh, not that I know of. Okay. So it was, a, it was a Oslo ASU thing? I think so, yeah. Oh, I never really thought about that. I mean, just never thought much of U of A. So um, pretty interesting, huh? Yeah. The dark world of fun to fun. I kind of wondered what kind of uh, size LP uh, investments. Uh, oh, were. I didn't ask that. I would think it's like three to $10 million checks. Right. So a fund like us, that's who we are looking. That's a sweet spot of who we're, I mean, when we're dealing with family offices and institutions, but those are like the, they're few and far between. There's not many people like some at peak, right? That'll pick up the phone and like, I think what we learned is thousand people like social leverage, you know, new, old, whatever. And, you know, with all this money being printed and all this technology, but it went from white space to crowded playing field, you know, I'm 55, but I'm continually learning. I want to keep sharing the mysteries of my business. So does that help uh, explain anything? I think it was great. It's like an ETF for funds. Exactly. Oh, that's Ellen. She's calling to say hello. Can she hold on for a second? Yeah. I just <laughs> put her into, I put her into voicemail. <laughs> Good. So uh, thanks for uh, putting that together. It was uh, very interesting. Hopefully everybody in Seattle can get out now. Uh, it's been a rough week up there. Uh, sun is shining here. Is the heat broken in Phoenix, Canute? No, it's still hovering around triple digits lower. I'm back next week, buddy. You are? All right, cool. Yeah, no, I won't take any of your slacking. You've been slacking all summer. God, I got to clean this place up too now? Yeah, clean it up. Put all the, uh, I don't even want to get into it. I no. know it's a mess there. I've got Tom sneaking in once in a while saying, what the hell's Canute up to over there? 
So, all right. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person. Likewise. The show will probably take a more interactive role, and you'll have to keep telling me to stop interrupting. I think I'm getting really good at letting people talk. And people are like appreciating. I'm like, fuck, I can't even be myself and people like it. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like getting more compliments by shutting up. Like, what's the point of having a podcast if no one wants to hear me? That's a novel thing. I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Who would have thunk a robot will be doing this for me soon? The uh, thanks to Stocktoots for putting this together and Canute for producing it. Uh, if you like what you hear, I do these twice a week, talking to investors, founders, taking the mystery out of investing, taking a panic out of your investing, trying to put some common sense uh, stuff in front of people and build the network. Um, you can uh, subscribe at Spotify or Apple. Go to Panic with Friends, Howard Linzen, Stocktwits. I have a free blog, howardlinzen.com. You can uh, subscribe and get me uh, in your inbox every morning and tell people that uh, I'm your friend, whatever it takes. And uh, we'll see everybody soon. Thanks, Knut. Thank you.